In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. If we human beings were left to our own devices and desires, we would be doomed to a vicious cycle of violence. Human life with no external restraints would disintegrate into what Thomas Hobbes called a mere war of all against all, a war of every man against every man. We need, I think, only the briefest glance at human history and at our own heart to see that this is true. It has always been so east of Eden, this propensity of ours to harbor enmity against our neighbors, against our own flesh and blood. It was so when Cain rose up against his brother Abel and slew him. And it has been so whenever and wherever the blood feud has stained the earth red. And you can sense it today in the visceral anger that so quickly surfaces in our partisan politics. And if you're like me, you know it in the familiar slide of your own heart towards envy and strife, even and perhaps especially directed towards your nearest and dearest. What will save us from this propensity to enmity? Love will. Love will rescue us. It is the love of neighbor that counters this Hobbesian war of all against all. For as St. Paul writes, love worketh no ill to the neighbor. Love does not work evil against the neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, the full totality of the law. Love thy neighbor as thyself. To obey this command from the heart is to exit the cycle of enmity in which we are otherwise entangled. Today's epistle and gospel lessons show in concrete terms just how the love of neighbor counteracts our Hobbesian bent and how it in turn is made possible. Let's begin with the epistle. In our passage, St. Paul urges the Christians in Rome to lay aside all traces of judgmentalism and disdain. At issue are doubtful disputations, doubtful points, the way differences in Christian convictions can breed enmity within the community. Specifically, some of the Christians in Rome were led by their consciences to give up eating meat, because any meat in that economy had connections with idolatrous pagan worship. While others continued to eat meat, out of a sense of the freedom that Christ brings. And this difference in practice tempted those who abstained from meat to judge those who partook, and tempted those who partook to look down on those who abstained. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? St. Paul called them to defer one to another, to give up their own freedom, their own preferences, for the sake of unity with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not judge one another anymore, he urges, but judge this rather, determine this, that no man 
put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. In other words, St. Paul calls us to cultivate humility for the sake of our neighbor and to dig up the roots of jealousy and quarreling, which, if left unchecked, would grow into enmity and strife. And he calls us to do this by setting before us the fact that we will all, everyone alike, stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ. Above all else, he says, the Christian community is to seek the things that make for peace and the things that are mutually edifying. Here, love of neighbor takes the form of an absolute refusal to engage in disputes over matters about which Christians may in good conscience disagree. The gospel lesson presents a more serious test case for the power of love to overcome enmity, namely the case of actual harm caused by my neighbor. How am I to be towards the neighbor who not only disagrees with me, but has wronged and wounded me? Is there a way to break out of my natural propensity to retaliate in kind? How can I exit the cycle of violence and hate? The way out is, in a word, forgiveness. If your brother sins, Jesus says, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And as Father Marsh showed in his strong sermon last week, the Lord Jesus gives his disciples a very concrete roadmap to reconciliation in the Christian community by means of forgiveness. But the command to forgive raises the question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often am I obliged to forgive those who sin against me? Perhaps we're inclined to say something like, three strikes and you're out. That's my tendency anyway, I think. Some of the rabbis shared it. And if we think about this, it makes us, or at least it should make us acknowledge that Peter's suggested limit in the story, he suggests seven offenses as the limit, is actually more generous than most of us are willing to allow most of the time. Stop and ask yourself whether you would be willing to forgive someone seven times over if they kept doing the same thing against you. Jesus, in response, teaches that forgiveness is not at all a matter of calculation or computation. I say unto thee, not until seven times, but until seventy times seven. You see, the effect of our Lord's words is to remove all limit to forgiveness. He shows that true forgiveness is not something that comes out of cold calculation, but that springs freely from the heart, and therefore no limit can be placed on it. And the parable of the unforgiving servant shows the logic of all this. It's the story of a servant in the court of a certain king, who when called to render accounts to his lord is shown to owe a staggering amount of money to his lord. He was in debt to the tune of 10,000 talents, a deliberately exaggerated amount of money, something like 150,000 years worth of wages. It's as if we would say that the servant owed his lord 
a trillion dollars. There's no way he could pay his master back. You know the rest of the story, though, how the Lord wrote off the servant's extravagant debt, how the servant refused to do the same for a fellow servant who owed him a measly 100 denarii, about three or four months' wages, grabbing him by the throat and demanding he pay up. And what the Lord said in the end to that unforgiving servant, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? You'll feel the full force of this parable if you see that you are the servant who owes 10,000 talents. You owe your Lord an impossible debt. And your debt is even more incalculable than 10,000 talents. You and I have owed our good Lord an infinite debt. But out of his tender mercy, he has forgiven us that infinite debt. Jesus paid it all. And therefore, we ought to take pity and forgive anyone who sins against us. For even the worst that anyone can do towards us would be nothing at all compared to what we have done towards God. God came into the world to show us his love, and we murdered him. Goodness itself came into the world, and we sought to destroy it. Nevertheless, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Think on this. Apply to yourself the saying of St. Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Let this saying sink into your soul. Let the fact of your own forgiveness give you a compassionate and merciful heart. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, perhaps you're thinking that to forgive without limits is irresponsible or reckless. And maybe there's something to be said for that. Forgiveness is costly. It is as costly as the cross. But, on the other hand, withholding forgiveness carries an even greater cost. Clinging to enmity damages and, in the end, destroys the soul. As Augustine put it, imagine the vanity of thinking that your enemy can do you more damage than your enmity. Despite its cost, forgiveness is unequivocally good for the soul. There's a story from Corey Ten Boom that shows what I mean. Maybe you know it. Corrie ten Boon was a Dutch Christian woman who was arrested by the Nazis for harboring Jews and thrown into a concentration camp. Somehow, she survived the horrors there. 
And after the war, Corey traveled across Europe sharing the good news of God's forgiveness. On one occasion, she was speaking in a church in Holland when she recognized a man who had been one of the guards at the Ravensbrück concentration camp where she and her sister Betsy had been sent and where Betsy had died. Corey writes, It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course, but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. You mentioned Raisenbrooks in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I had become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me all the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their difficulties remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing happened. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. 
I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Corey Ten Boom goes on to say that this gift of learning to forgive in this hardest of situations did not mean that she, had, that she never again had difficulty forgiving others. Instead, as she says, if there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. May we go and do likewise. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.